This week on the Backtable Podcast. You know, these systems that can offer both thrombectomy and atherectomy, in my mind, give you the benefit of then immediately treating not just the acute thrombus, but also the underlying chronic disease that may have caused the acute thrombus to lodge. And you kind of do two aspects of the single session treatment all at once because you're providing atherectomy, plaque modification, and you're providing thrombectomy at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome for all of our regular listeners. Welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on our website, backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast better and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Now a quick word from our sponsor. A patient with PAD can show symptoms in a variety of ways. This presents unique challenges when choosing a treatment option that is effective in improving outcomes across a broad spectrum of arterial disease. Angiodynamics Orient System changes everything. Using cutting edge laser tech that can aspirate anywhere, featuring a 355 nanometer wavelength and 25 nanosecond pulse width, the Orient System conquers disease with science in a way no other platform does. With the most versatile laser on the market, the Aryan system is able to treat PAD, ISR, CLI, and ALI, whether it's above the knee or below the knee. Different from most lasers, the Aryan system's 3.5 photon energy allows it to spare the vessel wall while attacking lesions. This safety profiles while leading interventionalists have chosen the Aryan system to treat more than 25,000 patients over the last two years and deliver improved quality of limbs and lives. Visit aryan-system.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Today, we're going to discuss arterial thrombectomy with Dr. Alexander Yushinsky. And Alexander, you're going by Sasha, right? I go by Sasha, yeah. All right. So Sasha, glad to have you on the show. Start out, will you just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us about your training, your background, and what your practice looks like nowadays. Sure. First of all, thank you for letting me join you. It's It's a pleasure. So my background, I did my training at UC Irvine in Southern California for my residency. And then my fellowship in interventional radiology was done at Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology at Washington University here in St. Louis. Um, and that was about three, three and a half years ago now. And I've stayed on as faculty at WashU. And over the last three years, my partners and I have built up a lot of the peripheral vascular facets of our practice. And here, in addition to the academic hospital, we're also starting to work at some of the community hospitals in the area and some satellite hospitals that the university has built out. So we have a relatively diverse practice mix because of those different sites. So if you don't mind me asking, I just want to know a little bit about the WashU program. Like how many IR docs is it? How many facilities? Just ballparking. So we have a pretty large practice. So in the academic core, we have 15 faculty, um, so 15 IR docs, and then In addition to that, there's two or three IRs who work in the community practice who staff a couple of the outlying hospitals, which the academic practice occasionally goes out to and and have been expanding our services. For example, my colleagues in neuro-IR now cover stroke at those satellite hospitals. So it's a little bit of a dynamic process that I'm sure my colleagues who are in academics also have now experienced with the universities kind of extending their presence in some of the community hospitals. So with 15 IR docs, a lot of good work to be done, no doubt. Whenever you came on to WashU as faculty, did you know that this was like an area that you wanted to dig into? So I'd had a little bit of limited experience in residency, especially at a VA doing peripheral vascular. 
which I really enjoyed. But when I did my fellowship early on at WashU, we had almost no capacity for peripheral vascular, no volume of peripheral vascular. We were you know, doing what was being done at the university where I did my residency at, which was mostly kind of salvage cases, on-call cases, acute limb ischemia, lysis catheter placements, and not many or any elective peripheral vascular cases at all. Since that time, my partner, Carlos Guevara, myself, and a, a third partner, Stephen Salk, have really worked hard to practice build and build up a pretty extensive peripheral vascular program at WashU across all those sites that I mentioned before. All right. So in a given week, like just to give our audience an idea of like what the practice is looking like now, how many cases of PAD, what do the cases look like? Are you getting all the dogs? Are you getting some of the good cases? Longitudinal? Is it one-offs? Like what is it? So between the three faculty who are doing peripheral vascular, there's a little bit of different practice mixes. For example, I do maybe about 30% of my practice is peripheral vascular, um, say with my partner, Dr. Salk. Carlos Guevara is probably 80 to 90% doing peripheral vascular. Wow. All right. Yeah. And so he's, he's really dedicated all of his, let's say, elective clinical work. He doesn't really support many other service lines other than you know placing the routine IR practice, G-tubes and drainages and things that we all do on call. Um, between the three of us, I think in the last academic year, we've done between 300 and 350 peripheral vascular cases with, I think, Carlos probably doing in the 60 to 70% range of those, given his practice mix. And we are doing these at both the university hospital and the community hospitals. The community hospital is more in an OBL style of practice mix, meaning you know it's mostly outpatient, pre-scheduled, relatively rapid turnaround. These are smaller hospitals. And then the university and one of the community satellites where we've been increasing our footprint, we are doing quite a bit of both inpatient and outpatient peripheral vascular work. Man, that's that's really impressive. Like when you think about like the number of cases and you said like three years ago. Zero. Golly, that's incredible. Well, I know this isn't like a practice building podcast. Like it's <laughs> not like the, the topic, but what we'll to get you back on, you and Carlos to talk about how you like built this machine. That's great. Yeah. To be honest, Carlos started building it up while I was in my fellowship and I think the most useful thing I learned in my fellowship was that practice building aspect of it and, and how to make these relationships with the referrers, maintain the relationships with the referrers. I'm sure you know, you've know you had other guests speak about that in the past, but it, that's something that we don't learn very well as interventional radiologists is really how to run those aspects of a practice and, and maintain that culture. Okay. All right. So getting into the topic, we're going to be talking about acute limb ischemia, if that wasn't clear. So this disease can kind of rear its head in a couple of different ways, but the first broad category is to talk about like workup. And so it's a little bit artificial, like we might just select like a clinical scenario that best fits it. But how do you kind of start your workup maybe for an inpatient on acute limb ischemia? Like what's the typical presentation for you guys? And I know that we're ignoring a lot of the nuance. Sure. I think, you know, when we get called, we get a consultation about acute limb ischemia. The patient usually arrives either through the ER or on the inpatient side. Occasionally, we'll actually get called from outpatient. We have a couple OBLs in the community that are former alumni or former faculty at WashU. And so we've had a couple calls from them. You know, I have a patient who just called me up, has acute limb ischemia. They're at home. Can we send them over to you? And I think you and I maybe will touch on this in the future. But more recently, we've been able to treat a few of those patients in a more of a outpatient or less than 24-hour inpatient type admission, um, given some of the changes that are going on in, in the acute limb ischemia world. But uh, to go back to your initial question of, you know, how, how are these patients presenting? So, you know, we're being called about patients presenting with these classic symptoms, acute pain, sensory loss, sometimes motor weakness, and, you know, cold limb. And a lot of these patients carry some history of peripheral vascular disease in the more chronic setting, but not all. Sure. 
So after you guys get called, so the consult's in, can you tell me a little bit what the focused history looks like and what your physical exam, like, you know, if you're kind of walking a fellow through like, hey, this is what we're looking for and uh, trying to ascertain. I think that, you know, when we are assessing the history of the patient, some important things to consider are whether they do have underlying peripheral vascular disease and trying to assess the etiology of why this patient may have developed acute limb ischemia, making sure they don't have atheroembolic disease or something else that would require cardiology consultation maybe considering whether they may have some sort of coagulopathic process going on or prone to clotting that may need to then follow up with a hematology referral. So the first thing is to take the patient's history and assess those risk factors. Um, the other thing is the temporality of the limb ischemia. And there are not infrequent cases where we're called for acute limb ischemia and when you actually speak to the patient yourself or the fellow speaks to the patient, you can ascertain that this is more on the kind of worsening chronic limb ischemia, which you would treat in a less, sometimes less urgent fashion, but it's certainly different. Getting the medical history of the patient, like we discussed, getting the temporality of the symptoms, always want to assess the progression of symptoms to see if the acute limb ischemia is getting worse. I tend to have my fellows try to grade the patients based on the Rutherford acute limb ischemia grading, meaning, you know, assess their degree of sensory loss, their degree of motor weakness. And then the other thing on the physical exam is obviously a pulse exam and an exam of the limb, right? You know, does the patient have immobile, paralyzed, woody limb, or does the patient just have some subjective sensory loss, but otherwise can wiggle their toes? You know, that is a, is a massive inflection point in, in how I determine to manage the patient. Going back to like the physical exam, I don't know if you consider it an extension of the physical exam, but do you guys Doppler the leg? Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly get bedside Doppler. Oh, I didn't know, like, sometimes, like, you can just carry them around, like, some places, you know, you just grab one off the IR wall and, like, pop over, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, we, we usually do, and, and they're usually, you know, they'll usually be at the bedside of the patients in the emergency department, so we have little carry totes with the Doppler and a little bit of gel for the fellows, definitely, and the expectation is the fellow or, or myself, if I'm going out there to the community hospital, will Doppler the leg. I will say that for the chronic limb ischemia patients, it can be difficult at baseline, right? You know, it depends on what the patient's um, baseline vessel is like. And, and for those that have very calcified vessels, it can be very difficult to find those signals. Yeah. Before we get into imaging, any lab work that's important to know ahead of time? Certainly all of the coagulation parameters, um, a normal CBC and a chemistry panel to look at their kidney function. If you're you know, really concerned about a pretty severely affected limb, you could start looking at lactate or other markers of tissue loss, really. But if it's getting to that degree, there there may not be much intervention that you can offer, but certainly need to assess that. So moving from labs to imaging, I wanted to get your idea of how does ultrasound fall into the role of like, how important is that for your practice and for your pre-procedure workup? Separate from the question of being able to Doppler just pedal pulses or a popliteal pulse. Yes. Yeah. So I would say that historically, I've relied a lot on CTA. I will say that, and we actually had a recent case of this where the patient just had so much severe calcific small vessel disease and tibial disease that it was very hard to make out much of anything on the CTA below the knee. And in those patients, I think there's a really important role for a good duplex ultrasound from a, a vascular lab that can do a good exam to see the vessels and evaluate the waveforms if they're present. Okay. So you kind of touched on it, CTA versus MRA, prefer CTA? I think CTA is, is more readily available, especially in the on-call setting. I think getting a high complexity, like a twist MRA, um, is pretty difficult to do in an ER at three in the morning to get a, a good exam. 
I mean, the images that can be generated, you know, on a Monday at 8 a.m. are really nice, but it's it's very difficult in an emergent setting. And the, the time commitment for that type of exam in someone who may have an emergent condition, a limb-threatening condition, can be sometimes limiting. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So anything else I missed as far as workup goes? So we did HMP, we did labs, imaging, anything else? The only thing I'll say is a lot of the patients are on already medication reconciliation, both for inpatient ordered meds and for outpatient medications, whether the patient's already on anticoagulation, um, if they have not been put on anticoagulation and there's a high index of suspicion, those are all important things to assess because actually mobilizing your forces and, and if the patient needs an intervention, bringing them for intervention may take some time and making sure that the patient's appropriately medically treated, if nothing else, is, is paramount. Will you guys go ahead and fill that gap as far as the medical treatment? Like you guys will heparinize them or? Definitely. Um, especially in the community hospitals where the consultant being asked the question, order the exam, order the CTA, order the heparin drip or the Lovenox if the patient's not a good candidate for a heparin drip for whatever reason. In the university hospital where there are resident teams, um, we'll make the recommendation for whichever anticoagulation is, is appropriate for the patient. If they haven't already received it from the referring provider. That's good. So you guys are getting your fellows well-trained, right? You know, in our practice here, we've had a very clinically oriented practice for many years. You know, we were uh, the primary site for the ATTRACT trial for venous lysis, and, and we've had an admitting service for a long time as well. So our fellows are generally very comfortable in terms of all aspects of, you know, inpatient management and interacting with the inpatient side of the hospital and the referring providers from hospital medicine or cardiology or whomever. Yeah, that's that's just the way of things from here on out. Like, so I, I graduated eight years ago, and the IRs that are coming up now, they're just new breed of like super docs. So thank you for like training these guys up and getting everyone. <laughs> I mean, but you're kind of of the ilk. Like four years ago, you were in fellowship, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, it's it's definitely I think been the culture here for a long time. You know, in retrospect, I hope that the fellows appreciate. It. It's definitely you know burdensome to have to drive in at three in the morning to see a patient on call. It sounds luxurious to our colleagues who spend the night in the hospital three nights a week, but uh, it becomes important, especially if, if you want to treat patients of any complexity or be involved in the medical decision-making for a patient. That's right. Okay. So patient prep, you've seen the patient, you've gone through the workup, and you think this is a patient who needs to move on to intervention. And so the category is kind of patient prep and, you know, we can start off in a couple areas, but one of the easy things to knock out is like antibiotics, uh, sedation level, like where do you stand on these things with these patients? If you'll allow me before we get into patient prep, one thing I of think course, is- Of course, Sasha, it, you're the, you're the <laughs> guest, of course, you can go you. wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. No, the one thing I wanted to add is is when you, you assess the patient, I feel like in acute limb ischemia, there is some dichotomization of the patients to those that would benefit from an intervention, meaning a, a revascularization of some kind, whether that is embolectomy, bypass, thrombectomy endovascularly, and those that have really lost uh, any salvageability of that limb. And you know that's something that I stress for my fellows when they evaluate the patient. And there's a spectrum, and, and sometimes we may choose to take on a patient for thrombectomy who is a borderline candidate with you know the, the chance of success is, is somewhat low. But I think that's important for folks who are going to be consulted to evaluate these acute limb ischemia patients is to also recognize those patients that are not salvageable. Because, for example, putting a lysis catheter in an elderly patient to try to save an unsavable limb and risk having a catastrophic hemorrhage probably is not worth it. And so to have a good sense for those patients that are not a good candidate, you know, the high Rutherford grade patients is important. And, and we're still, I think, learning 
which techniques lend themselves to kind of the middle, you know, Rutherford 2B patients, the patients who have a pretty threatened but maybe somewhat salvageable limb and, and which techniques are, are suited for those patients and which aren't. In my experience, and I'm sure we'll talk about it coming up, but the jury's still out on what the best treatment for some of those patients are. We're not clear. So can you talk about maybe some of the risk, benefit, things that you're rolling around in your mind as far as like, how do you tease apart the patients who are unsalvageable from salvageable? Like, and, and you know, we won't ping you to it, but what are some of the things that you consider that kind of push you into one category or the other? Yeah. I mean, a pretty high demarcation of paralysis is, is the most clear designation. You know, a patient who's rather for three has complete paralysis of their foot or a portion of their foot. Um, I would not take for an embolectomy or, or thrombectomy procedure in my lab. On the other hand, a patient who's Rutherford 1 or Rutherford 2A, I, I certainly would consider offering some sort of endovascular therapy for. I don't personally perform a surgical embolectomy, but maybe a candidate for those practitioners who do. The area where I struggle with sometimes is that Rutherford 2B group, the patients who are starting to have a little bit of extensive sensory loss and now some mild motor deficit. And if you had asked me this question three or four years ago, when all I had to offer was lysis catheter placement, those patients, I would say, probably will not benefit. And to be honest with you, I, I really distinctly remember a patient who I lysed in that context, you know, had a little bit of toe paralysis, pretty extensive sensory loss, did an excellent lysis, great angiographic outcome, three vessel runoff, patient lost her foot later that afternoon by amputation because we took too long with that approach. And after that, I told myself, you know, I'm not going to offer lysis for those patients anymore. But now with some of the newer technologies that, that you and I will talk about in the thrombectomy space, I would consider offering something about percutaneous thrombectomy type procedures for those patients. At least consider it. One of the exciting things about this topic is how just your practices can change with like new technology and it's really kind of driving like what we can do and what patients we can treat. So actually you did touch on something that I did want to talk about is um, how do you work with other uh, specialties. Like you mentioned embolectomy. How do you guys coordinate care between patients who have reasonable practitioners may differ on whether it's an interventional case versus a surgical case? It can be difficult sometimes because not only is it a question of surgical versus interventional, but it's what each particular provider is comfortable offering. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think especially when the referral comes to us from the vascular surgeon who's asking us if we'll consider an endovascular approach or a lysis catheter placement, becomes a slightly more straightforward discussion because it's two professionals who know what the other does. So in that case, it's just a discussion of, you know, what am I comfortable offering versus, you know, some of my partners in our group may not routinely use some of the thrombectomy devices that are on our shelf and are more comfortable with lysis catheter placement. And what is the vascular surgeon who's making the referral comfortable offering? For example, some may not consider embolectomy in diseased tibial arteries, or the patient may not have a distal target for bypass or a suitable conduit it becomes a more nuanced discussion with those types of folks. When the referral comes from the emergency department or internal medicine hospitalist, then I'm able to kind of lay out what I think is offerable from my endovascular approaches. And if I feel like the patient's not a good candidate for those, then I would ask them to engage our surgeons for consideration of some of the options they may have. And it may, you know, after a discussion come down to the fact they don't have anything different to offer. And then, you know, the patients usually return to me if I feel comfortable or if I feel that they're a candidate for some of these endovascular approaches that I can offer. And is it a good collaborative relationship with vascular surgery or cardiology, whoever it might be that is in this space? I think in general, we, we have a fair relationship with them. Um, we have good discussion about these types of patients when the referrals come through. Sometimes there can be some disagreement, especially 
when there's overlap, and I think that now we have a pretty good relationship with the current surgeons in our hospital, and those folks are pretty collegial, and we can have a discussion about what we think is the most appropriate treatment. Sometimes there's a little overlap in terms of who saw the patient initially, because we do have some complementary treatments, and who would offer the same treatment one versus the other, you know? Some of the vascular surgeons in our uh, hospital do offer lysis catheter placement. So when the consult comes through and it's someone who has done lysis catheter in the past, and then there's a discussion of, do you do this procedure? Do you need me to do it? And things like this. But you know that can happen with, with a lot of these procedures. Yes, absolutely. All right. So uh, going back to patient prep, you want to talk about antibiotic regimens, sedation level, all of the above? So you know, in the realm of endovascular approaches, we are generally not offering just prophylactic antibiotics for all angiographic procedures. In our, in our practice, we don't, we don't do that. I know some practices give ANSEP pretty routinely. You know, certainly if the patient has any evidence of gangrene or soft tissue infection, that, that needs to be covered, definitely. And I would be very concerned if that weren't the case and I was expecting to leave some sort of implant like a stent or a stent graft. But it, routinely, I don't give like ANSEP or, or anything for skin flora coverage for my angiograms. And then how about sedation? Uh, so I, I do almost all of these procedures under, we, we call it minimal sedation, but where I trained before, we called it moderate sedation. It's fentanyl and versed sedation with nurse and physician monitoring, um, as is common in, in a lot of catheterization labs, IR labs. I would say that for most of the procedures I've done for acute limb ischemia, whether it's lysis catheter placement or placement of mechanical thrombectomy, the patients do very well with that type of sedation. The you know angiography is is generally not a particularly painful procedure. And these thrombectomy systems are not much larger than what we routinely use for a leg angiogram. Okay. Any patients that could benefit from GA or deeper sedation? Good question. I mean, if you're expecting a longer procedure, I would definitely consider GA. Depending on the extent of, of the thrombus, if you're thinking this may be a three, four hour procedure to remove all the thrombus and you're going to do a single session procedure, you may consider GA. The other times where it can be helpful are patients who are in such severe pain from their acute limb ischemia that they just won't tolerate laying on the table even or any kind of you know sheet touching their foot and things like this, um, you may benefit from it. And then the other time where it's helpful is we get a fair amount of patients who have kind of a restless leg type syndrome or just difficulty keeping their feet steady. Sometimes this almost kind of falls in the realm of claudication and rest pain from maybe some underlying chronic limb ischemia or acute and chronic limb ischemia. And for those patients, just to be able to have them be still to do the procedure, you know, consider GA. But the vast majority uh, do pretty well with the physician-directed monitored sedation. Yeah, so just routine fentanyl versed, right? Yeah, exactly. We use fentanyl versed. I know some places will use Presidex and things like this, but we, we don't routinely do that in our practice. Okay. So set the stage for us. So like, you know, because we, you can have any patient, so this can be the ideal patient, can be a nightmare patient or whatever, but let's lay the table stakes as far as what kind of patient that you're going to be dealing with, and then we can dig into like the details. Which one would you, would you like me to try? I, I do them all the same. Oh, really? Okay. Every, every, right. proce every procedure starts the same. Every procedure right, good, starts good, good, good. the same. All right. So the, the dream patient, the patient who you're like, oh, sure. yes, this is perfect. This is like 8 a.m. I already had a patient canceled. They're filling a slot. So this is the oh, perfect beautiful. patients. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, usually I'll have some sort of cross-sectional imaging. So I, the patient has a CTA and I know what I'm getting into from the CTA to some extent, at least. All my patients who have acute limb ischemia, I will start with contralateral groin axis. You know, they're in the IR lab. We've sedated them ultrasound-guided contralateral groin axis. And I begin every case by going up and over. If needed, I'll do an aortogram if there's some iliac disease that I'm concerned about from the CTA. But in general, all patients begin with a diagnostic angiogram, a nice diagnostic angiogram with the power injector, 
with the you know flush catheter parked in a patent segment, usually in the distal external iliac or the common fem, um, depending on the the site of the acute thrombus. Okay. So you're going up and over and you're doing the diagnostic catheter and the affected limb, right? Okay. Yes. And I do a full runoff to the toes every time. Do you do it like one injection and like the table will kind of step along or is it segmented like pictures, reset, pictures, reset? I do in stations to the foot. Our equipment can do step and shoot, you know, the the fancy stuff, but I don't know how to do it. And I'll tell you, we have nine or 10 labs that we cover at the university hospital, which means we have like 40 or 50 technologists. And even in the perfect setting at eight in the morning on a Monday to find the tech who knows how to do that is is difficult. The technology is there, but in practicality, it's like, I'm with you. Like I go through a lot of different labs, work with a lot of different technologists of varying skills and knowledge. So, okay, I'm with you. All right. So shooting in stages, got it. Yeah. And, and I'll say, you know, it's important given that, that you may have technologists with different comfort levels to really be prescriptive in how you want the room set up, what kind of contrast you want the injector. I generally use 50-50 contrast in the extremities. We usually use VisiPake as our contrast agent when we're doing extremities. But, you know, I usually run through the plan with the technologist ahead of time as well to make sure that we end up with a, a good exam and, and a smooth flow to the case. Can you talk about, like for some people that may have missed it, why you pick VisiPake for these cases? So there's some thought that VisiPake is a little bit less painful for small vessel and extremity angiography. I'll say I've used some of the other contrast agents in the extremity from time to time, and the patients don't seem to complain about pain. I will say with CO2 injection, patients do get some discomfort sometimes in, in the extremity angiograms. But in general, that's why we use VisiPake. I saw a smaller contrast. All right. So you're taking pictures. You got good diagnostic, high-quality pictures. Okay. Yeah. So once we have a good diagnostic angiogram, identified the area of occlusion, the, the next thing I'll do is the patient isn't already pretty aggressively heparinized. I'll, I'll heparinize the patient pretty aggressively for intervention. So usually these patients come to us on a heparin drip. For the access, sometimes if I'm feeling cautious, I'll have them hold the heparin drip for a few minutes and then get access into the, the groin. But sometimes just get access with the heparin drip running, knowing that I'm going to be pretty aggressively heparinizing the patient in a few minutes anyway. I give my heparinization as a just the initial bolus and then get ACTs every 30 minutes or one hour. And the, the bolus, I don't do in general like a weight-based bolus dosing. I know some people do. We usually kind of, depending on the size of the patient, start with about you know seven or 10,000 uh, units of heparin to begin with and then check an ACT in about 30, 40 minutes and see how the patient's doing and then assess from there. So you kind of ballpark it based on weight and then check an ACT and then see where you're at in 30 minutes. Especially because in my practice, I, I deal with a lot of tibial disease in general, not as much in the acute limb ischemia space, but when I'm treating chronic limb ischemia, I generally need my patients pretty aggressively heparinized for a successful and safe procedure. So I'm pretty comfortable being pretty aggressive with my heparinization for these patients as well. And so you know, once I've heparinized the patient, I will exchange my, you know, 11 centimeter sheath for a long sheath um, that I'll park in a patent segment of the affected extremity. Usually, I uh, start with a six French system when I'm doing these interventions. Okay. What do you like for your sheath of choice? Anything that gets you up and over? We use destination mostly, Terumo destination sheath, nice braided sheath. They're pretty hydrophilic. Um, I will say the valve doesn't uh, always stay on as well as some of the cook sheaths. One of my partners um, has a, some special ordered cook sheets that, that he keeps for himself, but um, in general, we use the destination sheets. And so with the sheath up and over, I'll, I'll begin the in true intervention here. Um, and, you know, as, as most of the things we do, the, the first step is, is getting wire access beyond the occlusion. As opposed to the chronic limb ischemia patients, as, as you and, and some of the audience knows, with acute limb ischemia, it's usually pretty easy to cross the acute occlusion, the acute thrombus, soft. 
It's just like an acute DVT in the folks who are doing mostly venous disease. Um, it's usually easy to have your wire cross as opposed to chronic limb ischemia and, you know, park your wire across the occlusion. That's also an important inflection point because there have been a couple of times where I'm expecting acute limb ischemia and I have a lot of trouble getting my wire to cross the area of occlusion. And, you know, then you look back at the angiogram and you say, well, actually, you know, there's a lot of big collaterals here and the patient's history sounded a little fishy. And I don't know that this really needs a, a lytic catheter. Maybe we need to just see what happens with, with some of our methods for chronic limb ischemia. Yeah. It's like the wire test, right? Like the wire like, exactly. tells you a lot tactile. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And depending on where the, the site of occlusion is, I'll either use 035 guide wire for kind of fempop. And then if there's some disease distal to the fempop segment, I'll usually use an 018 or 014 system for, for the entire procedure. Oh, so you you start crossing with an 018 or an 014 wire? Not not infrequently, not infrequently, especially if I'm planning an intervention that will require that type of guide wire. What do you like for wires? So we keep a, a reasonable stock. My favorite, honestly, is the glide wire advantage from Taruva. The 014 glide wire advantage, more so than any of the other glide wire advantages, it forms an excellent knuckle at the tip, feels really atraumatic um, and kind of glides through, stays true lumen, I hope. <laughs> um, and uh, and stays in the big capacious vessel once it forms that knuckle without going into the side branches, which which just makes it really easy. And I, I follow that with a, a support catheter. I used to use the quick cross line from Spectronetics, but in the last six months or so, we've actually switched to a CSI product called Viper Cross. Um, they have them in from 014, 018, and 035. It's a very, very hydrophilic support catheter. Really nice crossbow. Use it, of course, mostly for my chronic limb ischemia patients where it's difficult to, to cross with the catheter. But since it's, it's on the shelf and it's similar in cost to the, you know, the quick cross and these simple extruded tube type catheters, I just grab that and use that. Okay. Great. All right. So the wire goes easy, cross is easy. What next? So cross is easy, follow with the catheter, of course. Um, the next step that I always teach my fellows is to do, uh, angiogram and prove that you've crossed, right? You need to make sure that your, truly across the occlusion and, you know, just confirm that you're in, in patent lumen. Um, and that's critical, I think, for a successful acute limb ischemia and a vascular case, and especially for uh, lysis catheter placement as well. So ideally, if you have something that's popliteal and then infrapop disease, like where do you want to end up? Like how distal are you? Or are you just parking a, a patent segment that's kind of capacious? So the first thing is that as soon as I think I'm through the occlusion, I'll just prove that I'm in the vessel. And that probably comes from my habits with crossing chronic occlusions, right? But if the patient has concomitant chronic infrapop disease, I will usually at that juncture have a plan of whether I'm going to immediately address, you know, the infrapop disease and try to do a single session thrombectomy and a treatment of chronic limb ischemia, or whether this is going to be a lysis catheter case where I'm going to address the infrapop and chronic disease at a second day procedure. All right. So you're all set up. So you got your catheter, you're in a good spot distally. You can either talk about the next step or talk about the inflection points of what drives you to one treatment modality versus another. Sure. Why don't I start with what I would have done four years ago and talk about catheter lysis, right? Um, before we had a lot of these um, single session thrombectomy tools. And it's interesting because I felt like I did a lot of lysis in my training, um, whether it was venous or arterial. My current fellows don't do very much at all because in both spaces, venous and arterial, we have so many excellent thrombectomy devices. So they're, they're less comfortable with lysis than I think maybe you and I were in our training. But important things I think about, you know, once I've crossed, if I'm planning to do a lysis case, is making sure that my lysis catheter spans the entirety of the thrombus, that I have 
basically outflow for the lytic, inflow and outflow. So I, I choose a lysis catheter that has a length that will span the thrombus and try to make sure that I have one or two side holes beyond the thrombus in the patent outflow and holes throughout the thrombus and hopefully one or two holes proximal to the thrombus to make sure that that TPA really can get out and marinate throughout that thrombus. That was my pattern four years ago or five years ago. I would stitch in the sheath and ship the patient to the ICU for an overnight lysis. Nowadays, as you suggest now, there's an inflection point. The way that I think about whether to do lysis, um, there's a couple factors that come into my mind, whether to do lysis or whether to do a single session thrombectomy. One question is just the time frame. You know, is it very late at night? Do we have the time? Do we have the technologist and the facility support to do a multi-hour procedure? You know, on call at two in the morning with traumas coming in may not be the appropriate use of resources necessarily to do a, a two-hour thrombectomy procedure and back up the the trauma service. It may not be a safe bet. The other thoughts. Uh, that I have are the extent of the thrombus. It's pretty difficult to thrombectomize very small vessels sometimes. And especially if there's quite a lot, you know, if all three tibials and there's a fempop, there's just a very large thrombotic burden, I tend to err towards a lysis um, unless I'm really prepared for an extensive slog. And so those are some some of my considerations there. And then for the patient that has a pretty small you know, amount of thrombus, I feel really strongly about some of the single session thrombectomy devices um, in lieu of lysis. You know, it's even maybe in the middle of the night, if there's really just a small amount of disease and we can kind of solve the issue, then I will err much more towards thrombectomy devices. So thrombectomy, single session treatment, then you wrap it up and it's done. Exactly. And, and the other consideration are patients for whom lysis is high risk, right? Elderly patients, patients with recent abdominal or other surgery, patients who just are not good candidates to have systemic TPA. And we may not have had much to offer them years ago, but um, now I think the single session thrombectomy approaches are reasonable for a lot of these patients who can be heparinized but can't receive TPA. All right. So thrombolysis, we can, we can come back to it a little bit later, but it may be helpful for people to know what your uh, solution is, like what your drip rate is and everything. So, so sometimes people look for that, but let's come back to it. Let's, let's talk about the thrombectomy. Well, like, like I said, the younger folks who are in practices that aren't doing much lysis anymore don't really know, you know, they don't know how to, how often are they checking the fibrinogens and- Right, right. And then what's your volume, like how much you have going through, like what's your heparin rate? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always nice and like one of your partners solves that for you and you already have like the Epic or EMR smart order set, like already ready to go and you just like click, click, yeah. click. Yeah. That's what we have going though, though, you know, between the phone calls from pharmacy and, and, and things like that, it, it still takes a while to order the- that's the other challenge with lysis is ordering and maintaining the TPA is burdensome. <laughs> sure. It's burdensome. It's That's a right. lot of monitoring. Yeah. All right. So let's let's take it then to the uh, thrombectomy side. Yeah. I kind of gave you my breakdown of the patients who I, I favor thrombectomy for. You know, one thing that I think about is that there's quite a lot of thrombectomy devices on the market, and it feels like it's really been exploding between the venous and arterial thrombectomy offerings from, from almost every major and a lot of the minor medical device companies. A lot of innovation in this area, which is good, which is good. Yeah, it's excellent. And I think that it's giving a lot of opportunity for patients. And there's a lot of choices now for folks who may not have been as comfortable with or didn't have access to one of the systems. Now there may be something that your hospital system approves that's on service for your system or that you're just comfortable with. So there, there's a lot of really nice options. We have in our practice access to maybe about four different thrombectomy devices that, that are appropriate for acute limb ischemia, maybe three to four. Wow, that's pretty impressive. 
Yeah, not all of them are uh, primarily ordered or, or requested through the interventional radiology department. Um, some of them, our vascular surgeons are using primarily, but we we also have access to. You know, they're they're down the hall in the OR or in the cath lab where they do some of their endovascular procedures. And so, you know, in our big hospital system, we have access to quite a few different vendors' offerings. Maybe I just to name a few can kind of go through chronologically in, in what we had available in our lab. Maybe is a, a nice way to start. Yeah, talk about the evolution of what you have seen and what you've moved to. Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, so not that long ago, even. The two main offerings we had on our shelves were the AngioJet, which is now by Boston Sci, and then the Prenumbra thrombectomy catheters, the Indigo Systems. And those were kind of our tried and true. The nice thing about those is both those vendors have offerings for very small vessels and larger vessels, right? You know, you have the eight, eight French AngioJet, which I don't know that a ton of people are putting in for arterial thrombectomy in the extremity. But you have all the way down to the, I think it's called Solent or something like this, and down to like three or four French system for small vessels. And, you know, angiojet rheolytic thrombectomy has been around for quite some time. And over the wire system, the only things, you know, that, that I think about is it can cause some bradycardia. Um, we always warn our fellows about that, especially if you're using it more centrally. Um, in our venous cases, we use angiojet still quite a lot. And then you always warn the patient they're going to have dark colored urine afterwards. To be honest, I haven't used angiojet in an arterial thrombectomy case in a, in a very long time because we like some of our other offerings. But I know that in some labs, that's their kind of tried and true, and it's been around for a very long time. The next device that we had been using and has been on our shelf for a good while as the Indigo line from Penumbra. And again, just like Angiojet and some of the others, they have a pretty wide variety of offerings in terms of catheter size, from the smallest coming from their coronary and, and neurovascular lines. I think they have a three French version. Um, and then going up all the way up to now, Right now, a 12 French, and then I think they have a 14 or a 16 French offering that they're going through with a limited market release for PE. Obviously, I don't think people would use that in the um, lower extremity. Mm, seems bold. Bold, maybe. Bold person. Bold, yeah, yeah. But but they, they do have, and you know, the nice thing about the penumbra system, in my opinion, and actually AngioJet is, is the same way, is, you know, if you have the engine, the pump that um, runs the system, you can connect any of the catheters to it. So that's really nice for the the lab that maybe does the occasional peripheral vascular case, but is otherwise a cardiology lab, but happens to have CATRX, you know, on their shelf. You can call the rep and bring in, or just use the CATRX, but, you know, you can call the, the rep and, and bring in the other size catheter that you may not normally keep on your shelf. And otherwise the system works just as you expect from your experience, whether it's in coronary thrombectomy or whether it's in venous thrombectomy, the system works the same between sizes of the catheters. And we can speak more on any of these particular systems going forward, you know, and, and how we, we like to use them. But the, the next one that we brought on board in our lab is the offering from Angiodynamics, which is Orion, which is a laser atherectomy system. And, and we brought this on as an atherectomy system for chronic limb ischemia, but the two larger sizes, the six and seven French sizes, the two millimeter and 2.3 millimeter size also have a thrombectomy lumen um, and is actually on label for thrombus removal, thrombectomy. And so we've used that uh, really successfully in quite a number of patients because it's also, you know, approved for treatment of instant uh, restenosis. So for a lot of my patients who are coming with baseline chronic uh, limb ischemia, may have been stented treated in the past and now have... Stent goes down or... Exactly. Stent goes down, patient's foot is numb again. And, and these are kind of the, the less acute cases that you, you know, the patient calls your nurse, you send them up for the next day in the lab at 8 a.m., and that has been a really nice option because it really fits the wire and catheter and sheath profile of, of the way I treat chronic limb ischemia, which is much more of my volume. 
And the other nice thing I'll say about those types of systems, um, and we'll talk about you know their competitor Rotorex in a second. But you know these systems that can offer both thrombectomy and atherectomy, in my mind, give you the benefit of then immediately treating not just the acute thrombus, but also the underlying chronic disease that may have caused the acute thrombus to lodge. And you kind of do two aspects of the single session treatment all at once because you're providing atherectomy, plaque modification, and you're providing thrombectomy at the same time. Well, so this is like one of my, my questions about like these devices that are treating the plaque and the clot. Are you getting the best of both worlds or are you getting a device that does each of them okay? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. From from my perspective, if I'm looking at the devices that only do thrombectomy, I would never say that I came away super satisfied with how a peripheral acute limb ischemia case went with those. You know, For example, the penumbra catheters generally are not over the wire, right? Other than cataracts. You can put a wire through it, but they're not uh, intended to be done that way. And I can tell you that in a diseased artery, I have run into the issue where, you know, the lip of the penumbra catheter catches on a, a piece of plaque and then I, I'm uncomfortable. Like, do I push on through it? Do I do I pull back and turn? You know, am I going to embolize a little plaque? And not that you couldn't embolize a plaque with another catheter, but suffice it to say that I don't think that the pure thrombectomy systems are all that superior at thrombectomy than some of these thrombectomy atherectomy systems. Let me give you this example. When I have done thrombectomy with the Orion system, my blood loss is about 200 cc's. When I do thrombectomy in the extremity with the penumbra system, my blood loss is about 200 to 300 cc's. It's sucking a similar volume of free blood and hopefully the thrombus as well. I will say that both the penumbra system clogs and the Orion system clogs and the Rotorex system clogs. And so those that that is a challenge with with all those systems in my experience and and you know you have to pull the catheter out flush it on the back table get out some chronic material some acute material and then reintroduce it that's a definitely a frustration of these single session procedures so we've named four devices the angiojet the penumbra uh, the orion and uh, the rotorex what are you guys using most frequently like what's the go to yeah, at this point, my go-to is the Arion, and I'll give you the the reasons. First of all, I, I use it relatively frequently in my lab for chronic limb ischemia, so my techs are are relatively comfortable with it, and I'm relatively comfortable with it. If there's a tech who doesn't know how to use the system, I can, you can fill the gap. Yeah, I can fill the gap exactly. And then, like I mentioned, I like that it does some atherectomy, um, and that it's approved for instant restenosis. So I know it will, to some extent, treat some of that chronic material or, or chronic plaque as well. It tends to follow the guide wire pretty well. And it's on that 014 system, which is what I often use initially anyway. Um, I usually run it in over a Spartacore guide wire once I've gotten distal access just to have support. So to back up, so it's um, guide wire advantage to cross and then get your catheter in and then you change out for the Spartacore? I usually will. I mean, you can run a lot of these devices over the the softer GlideWire Advantage, um, especially when I'm working with residents, there's a lot of wire manipulation skills that we're all still learning. And so I'll try to put a supportive guide wire in um, if I'm going to do that type of intervention for sure. And I think Rotorex comes with its own 018 guide wire that you run the system over as well. But yeah, and my workhorse has, has lately been the Orion. The other thing I'll say that's nice about that system is it's relatively easy to switch catheters. So I've, I've been in the situation where I've chosen the larger thrombectomy catheter, the 7 French, and it has trouble getting through, you know, catches on the edge of the stent or something like this, or there's a really severe chronic stenosis. I'll take that out, downsize to a smaller catheter, 
and then you know the system's still running it's pretty easy to hot swap your catheters you you know once you use it you don't have to toss it you can put it right back into the machine and reuse it afterwards once you've kind of treated the severe stenosis with a smaller catheter for example is it one of the systems where i haven't I haven't used it so pardon if this sounds like a, a dumb question is it one of the ones where it's pulling out into a canister and you have like the clot shot afterwards it, it does pull out into cancer. It looks just like the like wall suction canisters that you see in the the patient's room that they use for like you know the, the Yankauer suction. So for that system, you have two sizes that do not do thrombectomy and two sizes that offer thrombectomy plus atherectomy with uh, laser fibers along like the edge of the catheter lumen, and then the inner lumen is a, a suction. And so yeah, that that goes to a little thrombectomy canister that sits on the machine. I, I will say that the clot picture afterwards is is never all that impressive. Really, the, the best clot picture that you get is when you flush the catheter on the table and, and sometimes you get this like kind of chronic yellow material, especially from that instant restenosis. That's not the same as the atheroembolus, but uh, I try to advise my fellows not to play into that social media clot picture. <laughs> sure, right. Whose clot is bigger game. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't think that that's... Um... That's not helpful. That's not <laughs> moving the ALI service. We can all put pretty pictures on social media, but you know the the real goal is to provide useful and, and good patient care, and and I think that should be where our focus is. I hope. All right, that's good, Sasha. With any of these devices, um, any good, well-rounded tips as far as using these devices safely, effectively, like optimizing. I mean, that's like one of the struggles. There's so much. There's so many devices in this space. Sometimes you just have to pick one, go with it, and get really, really excellent at the one that you use the most. But is there any general advice you can give to like the audience about like basic practice patterns that can kind of help you work through a case and like tips that you've learned over the years to stay safe, but still like aggressively treat clot and, and thrombus? Definitely. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is not to be intimidated by these devices. I know a lot of my colleagues in IR are not doing as much chronic limb ischemia as our field used to do, or maybe, you know, folks who are just not as endovascularly oriented. Most of these newer devices are pretty straightforward to use. They, they may look a little intimidating at first, but it's really the same basic good practices of guide wire and catheter technique, maintaining good back tension on the guide wire, choosing the right size guide wire for the catheter, um, all these basics that, that we all learn in our training, maintain here, and, and hopefully will make these systems a little less intimidating for someone who doesn't use them as often. The other thing I'll say is, like we kind of alluded to, a lot of these patients have some underlying chronic limb ischemia or may have stents in place. I think it's important to assess whether you know the device you're using is going to be safe to use in those settings. Um, there are some devices that I don't have much experience with. For example, there's a new thrombectomy device, Pounce from Sermotics. And Inari, I don't know the name of the device from Inari, but Inari has a limited market release of an arterial thrombectomy catheter, both of which kind of pull clot out. I've spoken to our local reps and, and at some of the conferences, and you know some of these devices may or may not be suited for use within stents, especially fresh stents that aren't well endothelialized. Um, so those are all things to, to kind of be considerate of. Other tips, I would make sure that the patient is well heparinized. Uh, make sure that you're able to check an ACT. I generally try to keep my ACT above 270. Like I said, I'm, I'm often working in the chronic limb ischemia space in the tibials, and we, we keep it even higher for that. But um, definitely making sure that you're well heparinized is another critical factor. Another pitfall that we teach our fellows and, and that I would just want to remind folks is to try to avoid injecting contrast or pressurized injections within thrombus. You know, there are situations where your catheter is in there, you're not sure what's going on. And I would really emphasize not injecting within the area of the thrombus, but really using your, your sheath that should be in a patent segment high above 
to do your injections to check and see how things are going. And those are like the most critical pitfalls I always make sure I, I remind my fellows about. The other thing I, I always think about is you have to know when you're succeeding and when you're not succeeding, right? You've done multiple passes with your thrombectomy device of choice. You know, they're all probably good and adequate. If you're not getting a good result, then, you know, there has to be a stopping point. And, and for me, a lot of times I'll, in my mind, have a thought of if the patient is a lytics candidate, you know, if we've done this for a little while and, and we're not successful, or we're not making useful progress, can I place a lytic catheter? get some benefit from that and see the patient the next day and maybe, you know, live to fight another day in that sense, rather than being bogged down in a six-hour procedure. I was always taught that these extremely lengthy procedures are where bad outcomes happen. And so those are kind of some of the other general guidelines I, I'd give. That's a good tip. So actually, it segues nicely into like one of the topics on the outline is endpoint. Like, when are you done? Is it angiographic? Is it clinical? Is it a combination? So yeah, speak to that, but dig in a little bit further. Like when is the case over? Whether a case you're succeeding or a case that you're you're succeeding at failing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the most important question is is how is the patient doing? And, you know, there there have been a couple cases where you're doing I've been doing a, a chronic limb ischemia case that becomes a acute limb ischemia case. And very quickly the patient is not doing well. And, you know, you need to assess how quickly can I fix the immediate problem and can I get the patient's pain under control and the patient comfortable enough to continue the procedure. And we alluded to some of this earlier when we were discussing who who is well-suited for an anesthesia or deep sedation case. Aside from, from that circumstance, you know, as we're doing the procedure, my general practice is I'll pass my desired thrombectomy device a couple times and I'll assess if I'm now drawing good blood from the the thrombectomy lumen. You can also get a lot of tactile sensation from some of the devices. Is it flowing through freely? For example, the angiodynamics, the Orion device, when it's in plaque or thrombus, there's an audible noise that comes from the catheter, maybe from the uh, laser energy that becomes duller. And then when it's in a free lumen, it becomes sharper and easier to hear. So I, I use that to kind of tip me off. You know, if that span that is dull uh, sounding is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter, I know that I've created some patent lumen channel. And you get some tactile and auditory feedback from the Rotorex device in that regard as well. Once I've done a few passes with these devices, I'll shoot an angiogram and see what I have. And to be honest, almost always what I end up seeing is, you know, two, three millimeter patent lumen with some residual chronic or acute thrombus. And then if I'm unlucky, what I see is some embolus that has maybe gone down to a, a tibial. And that's usually kind of a point where I stop and reassess. If I've made a, a really a decent channel and there's not off-target embolization, I'll proceed to treating the residual chronic and, and maybe some acute disease. Um, I'll usually do balloon angioplasty and, and possibly stenting if needed. If there's really a chunky chronic thrombus, I've been in a couple of situations where there's instant restenosis with you know, this kind of rubbery chronic material. In those cases, I'll use a stent graft to exclude that or, or you know, sometimes a stent to exclude that. But otherwise, you know, I, I treat the residual underlying disease most, most often with just balloon angioplasty. In the setting where there's maybe some distal embolization, you know, depending on what thrombectomy device I'm using, we have some options to go ahead and tackle the tibials. Um, I probably would be hesitant to take the larger thrombectomy catheters from Orion into a tibial, the 2 millimeter and the 2.3 millimeter. And I'll use some of the laser catheters that are more intended for chronic uh, limb ischemia and chronic plaque. 
um, the smaller catheters, which are intended and sized for the tibials and take those down there and see if I can just burn through this chronic plaque. With some of the other devices, you know, with Penumbra, you have the CatRx option, which is, I think, five French, and then the Cat3 from the neurovascular side, um, which you can pretty safely take down into the tibials to try to thrombectomize those. S- same with the Anchoja, you have that, that Solent Omni, the small size. And then, you know, honestly, if there's not a massive acute thrombotic burden, I, I tend to have a good result with just plain old balloon angioplasty to try to macerate that thrombus and, and get it cleared up. And if I'm able to achieve all that, you know, my goal is to get a good angiographic endpoint as long as the patient is comfortable. So how aggressive do you have to be for maybe the uninitiated, like if you've got some distal emboli, which clots do you have to go after and which clots can you say, okay, well, we're going to heparinize them and it's going to take care of this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about flow limiting or degree of occlusiveness that prompts you to say, okay, now we have to go and intervene further? In the tibial space, you know, if you have some embolization to the tibials, the initial question is how, what's the baseline status of the tibials, you know? In a patient with pretty severe arterial disease and maybe one or two vessel runoff below the knee, there may not be much tolerance for a small amount of embolus. And, you know, now we have the technology to go all the way through the pedal plantar loop and perform thrombectomy. And, and if it is acute thrombus, it's pretty easy to get down to there and to, to try to treat the acute thrombus. If, on the other hand, it's a patient with a pretty healthy looking runoff, you know, three vessels, not a lot of arterial disease, and there's a small thrombotic burden, I think it's reasonable to consider heparinization, especially in light of, you know, how long the procedure may or may not uh, have taken up to that point, you know, to go after chase, perfect is the enemy of good, right, is is, is the saying, and, and, you know, to avoid a very lengthy and involved procedure with increasing risk of morbidity, it's pretty reasonable in a patient with good runoff to leave a little bit of tibial thrombus that the body can, you know, normally clean up. Okay. So you've got your endpoint. Can we dig in a little bit to post-care? Unless there's something, I mean, let's see, want to talk about closure or? All, all I'll say about closure is it's a question of heparin reversal at that point, what level people are comfortable closing and, and whether they use a closure device or manual compression. In my practice, in a patient who I'm planning manual compression, I would like to get their ACT to the level of like 200 or lower. Um, if I'm going to use a closure device, I'm comfortable stretching the ACT a little higher, 250 or occasionally if we if we need to, you know. But that, that's that's important consideration in these patients. And I'll often leave them on a heparin drip for a little bit of time, especially if we do have a little bit of residual thrombus like you and I were discussing. So those are all, you know, some considerations um, when you do think about closure. I don't think any particular closure device is better than any others. Um, there are a couple that are well-suited for patients with chronic disease in the CFA or the or the iliacs that you can visualize um, or that, you know, the, some of the suture mediated devices. But a lot of that is operator preference and what's just available in your lab. And that's kind of all I can say about that. In post-procedure management, like I said, especially if there's some residual thrombus after these single session patients, I might keep them for the evening. Let's say, you know, it was a, a morning or afternoon case, might keep them for the evening on uh, heparin drip. And then if we have good pulses and we feel like we've cleaned the thrombus and they don't have an underlying reason to need to be on a heparin drip, transition them back to antiplatelet management the following day. That's like the perfect case. You know, the patient, we know why they had, you know, and some of those patients, especially, you know, that setting of an outpatient who maybe rethrombosed their stent, has some mild symptoms, you can clean that up and maybe even send them home later that day after some protracted monitoring, especially if they're a reliable patient. Um, and we've had some success with that. I have a few of these patients who had uh, endovascular treatment, haven't really quit smoking, are prone to thrombosing. 
there's sense and we've we successfully treated some of the reliable ones kind of with a same day outpatient approach this way and you know for the ones that are a little um, less reliable that are a little more ill that are they're going to be hospitalized usually like i said we'll consider a transition away from heparin either to a oral anticoagulant or dual antiplatelet therapy the following day as long as as their pulse exam and their clinical exam in terms of you know their their motor and sensory is is doing well the next day that's for the you know slightly more acute patients Afterwards, are they going to ICU setting or whatever floor that they came from originally? Um, just talk a little bit to like, where's the appropriate spot to send them post-care? Definitely. So just to call back for our lysis patients in our hospital, they're almost always in the ICU setting um, when they're being lysed. And we do have one step-down unit that can take them. So they'll occasionally be on the, the step-down, but they need that high level of care to have frequent neurovascular monitoring. For the folks who have a successful single session thrombectomy, I don't think that they need ICU level of care most of the time unless there's any concern for compartment syndrome or something similar. And then those patients, especially after a successful treatment, are pretty safe to go back to floor level of care after the requisite post-angiography, you know, pulse and groin monitoring that we have and that most places do. Do you guys have like a floor that uh, is comfortable with like the IR procedures or like basically like a unit where a lot of y'all's post-angiogram uh, patients go or just anywhere in the hospital is pretty good? In general, most of our patients go anywhere in the hospital. Um, we have like a, a tapered groin and neurovascular exam post-procedure orders that are generally being done. We do have a couple units that are specifically higher acuity for vascular patients, one that's mostly managed by our vascular surgery division and then a couple of the surgical ICUs and step-down units. But we don't routinely have the patients go to those either the acute limb ischemia patients or um, any other angiography, you know, the PEs and, and things like this. Though The PEs will go to the ICU for monitoring afterwards, but in general, we, we most of our units will take post-angiography patients. All right. Well, is there anything uh, left that I didn't ask that you thought, oh, well, there's a gap, like we need to talk about that? Like any any stone left unturned? I, I feel like we covered most of the the heavy hitters. Do you? Do you... No, man, we got through the whole outline. Um, Good. Yeah, I feel like we crushed it. All right, guys, to our audience, thank you for listening. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes of this episode. Those are going to be found at www.backtable.com. And remember, the show notes are where you can find links to free CME offered by Backtable. So check that out. For others interested in supporting the show, like, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. Or you can just go old school and tell somebody about it. Um, Old-fashioned word of mouth is... Very helpful as we continue to build this community. That wraps things up. Sasha, thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate it. Chris, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And I just say, if any of your listeners have questions, that they're welcome to reach out. My contact's on the WashU website um, under my name, and folks should feel comfortable sending me an email. I'm I'm happy to reply and, and share any advice or experience that I have. All right. We really appreciate that. And I'm betting some listeners will take you up on that. So uh, bold, bold decision. Um, (laughs) All right. uh, Thanks for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. 
Design and Digital Marketing, led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social Media and PR by Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lurie Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Mood. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 